0: So, I uh, hope you've been enjoying this uh, brief study of the book of Philippians. We're calling it The Bright Side. It's a, a letter that Paul wrote to his family, his church family, in a place called Philippi in the first century, around 64 65 AD. Uh, he's writing from prison. Uh, he emphasizes how uh, great life is with Jesus, even when life uh, in, in uh, the, the, the surroundings and circumstances uh, that he finds himself isn't so great. Uh, he's implored the Philippians to, uh, as we talked last week with uh, Tom, to press on towards the goal, and uh, we'll be talking about that in a second, but uh, now we're at chapter four, and we're kind of on the uh, the back stretch of, of our study of this letter, and uh, I had all these intents to just plow through verses, you know, and I make my plans, I'm going to preach nine verses this day, and, and, you know, eight verses the next, and God just said, slow down, Mark. So we're going to slow down today, you didn't know that, you wouldn't have cared either way, but... Uh, uh, here's what I figured out about life. I'm going too fast. Does anybody else feel like they go too fast sometimes? I'm just, I'm failing to catch the things in life that I need to see and experience. I eat too fast. I'll sit down with my father-in-law, Byron, to have dinner, and I'm done 20 minutes before he gets to his ice cream. Uh, my dad, he's 90, almost 91 years old. Uh, he uh, is diabetic, and so he only gets one sweet thing a day. It's two ounces of butter pecan ice cream, which is like my least favorite ice cream, so he's totally going to get all of it. And, uh, uh, but those two ounces, have you ever seen someone just savor every bite? This guy is like a sloth eating his ice cream. He's just like, because <sighs> it's the only thing he gets that's sweet. But anyway, uh, I want to learn to be that guy. I want to learn to slow down and, and, and uh, uh, you know, smell the roses, as it were. Although roses smell kind of nasty. Has anybody ever noticed that? But, you know, you, you get the idea. Uh, uh, Eleanor will ask me to come out to our... our uh, we get this little dock, it's really small, but she, she has a couple chairs on it. And she'll just sit out there at, at uh, sunset, because the sunset's right over this little lake that we live on. And she'll just, oh, come on out, Mark. And I'll sit down. Anybody else like this, fellas? Maybe back me up. I'll sit down for like 30 seconds, and I'm like, well, saw it. All right, see you, babe. And, and, uh, and, just, and she's like, no, just soak it in. And I'm like, no, I got Netflix. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, which is dumb, so I'm trying to go slower, and I'm going to try to apply that to my preaching where uh, I can, and so we're just going to go slow, Uh, like I I had uh, five verses planned today, we got to verse three, we'll see how it goes, maybe I don't even get out of verse one, we'll just see how it goes, Uh, but uh, that's what's going to happen, Uh, we're going to have a meditative marination. I like my steaks to marinate for a bit. It brings the flavor out. And certainly, when I say uh, marinating, meditation, meditation is what we're called to when we study God's word. Everybody gets that, right? Don't don't go try to finish it all in one sitting. Just sit there and let God speak to you through his revelation, his word, and and lead you through it to the things that he has for us. All right. Now we will begin. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. It starts with a a word uh, in Greek, it's hoste, in English it's therefore. Anybody know what you do when you read a therefore in the Bible? What are you supposed to ask? What's it there for? Yeah, you're supposed to go back. And if you ever start in a, a particular passage of the Scriptures that begins with therefore... Do yourself a favor and and, and go back a chapter and see what they've been talking about before you continue to read. Uh, Like I mentioned just a second ago, Tom helped us with this. Uh, Last week, Paul wrote to the Philippians in the portion that we studied uh, that he uh, is forgetting what's behind, leaving it all there, and pressing on towards the goal of this upward call in Christ Jesus. He wants to know him. He wants to have more of him in life. Now, he speaks of it in terms of, 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 of Jesus coming into our lives. That's salvation and, and us you know, getting to know him and living for him in new and more meaningful ways. That's sanctification. As we await his return, that's his, uh, his return, is our glorification. These are the three phases of the Christ life. And so we're in that middle phase of pressing on, of becoming more like Christ and less like ourselves. Therefore, In light of this call to press on, he's going to essentially give some instructions as to how we're to press on here as he closes out his letter to his friends in Philippi. Before he gets to the instructions, the imperatives, the commands that he has for them, uh, he, he gives four affections for them, four affectionate names. You got like pet names in your house? Uh, you know, maybe you don't want to say them out loud, but like Eleanor and I have names for each other. I call my kids all different things. My, my middle son, son's uh, nickname is Lump. Don't call him that, but uh, there was a song that came out when he was born. She's Lump, he's Lump, he's Lump. He's in my head. It's by the President of the United States of America. Anyway, you're, if you know it, great, fine, but that, that's, he, he was just like a little lump when he was born. So we've called him Lump, uh, for, you know, 27 years. My, my daughter is Booch. I shouldn't be saying these things out loud. Who cares? Uh, but, you know, we, we, there was a cheer on SNL, you know, uh, uh, Kai, Kai, Boochie, Kai, 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 Boochie, roll call. My name is Kai. Anyway, we had this whole cheer for my kid while we were changing her diaper. And to this day, I've never, I've never signed a card or, a, or, or, or given my daughter anything with her real name, which is Kai. I just call her Booch. None of you can use those names, but you have them. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about? And so Paul's got his. Here we go. Wow. Let's See, that's why I only got through three verses. <sighs> he starts with this one. He says, as he addresses his friends here in the finishing of his letter, he says, my brothers, anybody ever been called brother in the Christian church? It's an apt affection or affectation. It's an apt nickname for those of us. Why? Because we're the family of God people. Uh, No matter where you go, if you meet someone, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have become uh, 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 a member of his family. You're a son or a daughter of God himself in the truest sense of that. Uh, that's that idea. And, and if you go somewhere in the world and you meet another brother or sister, you may have zero in common. Let, let me show you. Now, this is a picture of myself and my buddy from Africa, Uganda. Uh, he lives in Kampala, the, the capital there. His name's Liberty. Uh, he's the leader of a ministry that we partner with and training pastors over there. I had the privilege to go over a few months ago and hang out with him. And listen, we're different ages, different cultures. He speaks English funny. He thinks I speak English funny. Uh, uh, we don't have a ton in common, beyond our faith in Jesus Christ, but that is all we need in common because that makes us family. Paul writes from prison to his brothers and sisters, ladies, in the faith. He says, whom I love and long for. Uh, If he was texting his letter to the Philippians, uh, this part would have like all the heart emojis, you know, maybe the kissy face with the heart coming out of it, right? Anybody use these? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's him just sharing his emotions, his feelings. He, he loves them, which is the command of God for us to love our neighbors. Uh, but he goes beyond that. He longs for them. He, he wishes he could be with them. Is there anybody right now you wish you could be with? In fact, turn to someone next to you right now. They're not here. You wish they were. Who is that person that you wish you could be with? On the count of three, say their name to the person. One, two, three. Well, somebody of you don't want anybody here. Okay, uh, <sighs> that's fine. But he has this long, and I took my dog Toby for a walk the other morning. Uh, As as I was around in the corner uh, from our drive, my wife was returning from her exercise class, and so she and I greeted each other. It was the first time we'd seen each other that day. My dog heard my wife's voice, and it was over. Does anybody have this dog? He's trying to climb the Honda. You know, he's trying to get in there. And she drove away because we had to go do our walk, but my dog's no longer interested in the walk. Why? Because he's heard the voice of the one that he longs for. And he just wants to go back to the house and hang out with her, right? Anyway, uh, we kept going. That's how Paul feels for the Philippians. He calls them his joy. My joy. And we've been talking a lot about joy, how it's a choice uh, for us to make in in difficult circumstances. Uh, We don't have to be happy to feel joy or to to choose joy. Joy is this... uh, Uh, homeostasis. It's this condition that we find ourselves in in Christ where no matter what else is going on, I'm good because he's good. But this is interesting. He uses the same Greek word kara for joy to refer to these Philippians. And he's basically saying, you guys evoke in me uh, the desire to choose joy. The memory of you makes me joyful. Uh, It's that... uh, like if I pulled out my cell phone right now, on the back of my cell phone screen is a picture of my kids when they were in high school. They're my joy. Every time I pick up my phone, uh, I see their smiling faces. It's a good shot. And they invoke in me joy. Uh, my, uh, my, my wife and my daughter were a part of this Owen Mills kind of family portrait setting thing that we did. They got their picture together, and I keep their picture right behind Uh, My laptop, uh, so that when I fold my laptop down, the last thing I see before I head out for wherever I'm heading out is the picture of my beautiful bride and my lovely daughter, and it wells up in me. This, like, oh, that's my joy. It's joy. It's how Paul feels about the Philippians. He loves them, he longs for them. They're his joy, they're his crown. This is a great theological term. Uh, the Greek word for crown is basically this uh, laurel wreath uh, type kind of flowery thing that you would get at the end of a marathon. Um, the Bible talks about crowns in lots of different ways. We are um, going to be receiving crowns at the end of time. If, if you don't know this yet, the Bible is very clear. When we die, there's only two things that matter, whether or not we know Jesus Christ, okay, and then the things that we've done for him. Uh, at the first judgment, which is the white throne judgment, uh, God will ask us that. Did you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And those of us who have, we will pass on into eternity with him. But before we start eternal, which is fun, you can't say start eternity because there's no start or end, but, but before you know, things get rolling at that time, uh, we're, we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to commend us for the things that we did in his name on earth. So all the other things that you thought were so important, climbing the ladder, getting to X number of dollars in your bank account. Uh, winning the championships, that what, whatever those things are, those are great, they're fine, they don't count in the end, okay? They, they aren't what's important. What's important is is whether or not you knew him and the things that you did for him. When you, when you are standing at what we know to be the Bama seat, you can read about it in 1 Corinthians, uh, it's, the, it's the, the, the judgment that follows the first judgment, uh, he will commend us for those things and we will receive crowns. And that crown will be cast then at his feet, casting crowns. Someone should name a band. Um, But that crown will be cast at the feet of Jesus because obviously anything that we've done for him, he was the source, the power. Uh, There's power in the name of Jesus. Someone should sing that around here, right? So, So that's the crown idea. And Paul calls the Philippians his crown. Yeah, he's saying a couple of things. You're, my, you're one of my crown jewels. You're one of my crowning achievements. Spiritually speaking, when I look at you, I look at you like a proud father. You have honored me. You've honored Christ. You've served well in your community. You're my crown. And I'm going to stand before Jesus someday, and with, with, a, with a right spiritual pride, I will be honored to be associated with you because of all that you've done for Christ. So those four things, brothers, sisters, Family, the ones that I love and long for, my joy and my crown. It's a good start, right? Now he offers this. Here's his command stand firm. Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Uh, we've already covered stand firm in a previous message. If you were here probably six weeks ago, we were in chapter one, and Paul talked about hey, if you want to make my joy complete, stand firm in one mind. Stand firm. We talked about it that day. The, the, the Christ life is a statement to be made. Anybody remember the emotions? And it's a. Uh, uh, Thank you very well, Wow, way to go. Who is that? What's up, big fella? Here, you, you're here. Yeah, it's a stand to be taken. It, uh, the, the Greek word is where from which you know the idea of like a stake comes—not the yummy marinated kind, but the, the in the ground kind. Uh, it, it was from the military. It would be a, a, a command that an officer would yell out as, as armies would face off in the field: "Stakeite, stand firm." It, it's like uh, you know. Uh, uh, William Wallace in Braveheart, when uh, the Scottish uh, infantry is facing the English cavalry. Hold, hold, hold. He gets kind of nasty after that. But uh, uh, it's this picture, and he says, stand firm. Listen, church, here in this first century, as we're just getting going this faith, uh, you have to make it out of the first century, for this to make it out of the first century. You've got to stand firm for the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. He, he's, don't skip over little words. You ever do that when you're in the Bible? Just get the gist, keep going. He says, stand firm, and what's the next word? Thus. It sounds kind of weird in English for us to say, stand firm thus, or thusly. Um, it's, a, it's just a little adverbial uh, ad, Uh, But it's, Paul's basically calling into mind all of the things that they have stood firm in before. Hey, guys, this is not new stuff. I'm not giving you a new command. We've had to stand firm already, haven't we? When we first started as a church, our families thought we were crazy for believing in this carpenter from Nazareth, but we stood firm. When I, uh, you know, took the gospel to other places and people threw rocks at me, literally, and, uh, you know, uh, tossed me out of town and I had to, you know, uh, uh, just suffer in in, a just unbelievable ways, I and you have stood firm through those moments so that the gospel could continue to proceed. We've understood what standing firm is, and so all I'm telling you is to keep going in what we've already been doing. It worked yesterday, it'll work today, and it's our call for whatever we face tomorrow. Stand firm, stakete, hold. Stand firm in the Lord. So the question, as we're going to walk through in the next few weeks, how does that happen? How do we do that? How do we stand firm in the Lord? Well, uh, that's why it's going to take a little longer. I want to kind of just uh, pop this balloon for a second. Um, it, it's going to be super obvious to everybody. Can, can we all agree that standing firm is a choice and that uh, our ability to stand firm is going to ride on the choices that we make in, in terms of us... Being able to stand firm. Like life is choices. Is anybody with me on this? Does anybody agree with me on this? You chose to get up here this morning? Way to go. Good to have you. You chose to tune in right now? Way to go. In the next few minutes, you could choose to tune out and go to whoever's on your phone. Google what you want. And you could choose not to listen to me anymore. Some of you already have. And you're like, oh, wait, how does he know I'm Googling right now? <laughs> uh, you could be online. Where are you? Where's, there you are. Hi. You could be online right now and you could choose to get up from wherever you're watching this online. And go outside, and you'll still count it because it was running while you were out there. We can do it. We, we, listen, choices shape our outcomes. We sow, and then we what? Reap. It's, it's just a principle of life. It goes even beyond the spiritual. It's just it's how things work. We, we learn it early. Now, how, how many of us have parented anybody? Anybody parented a kid in here? What do you teach them? As soon as they know uh, the difference between right and wrong, uh, they are doing something wrong. You pull them aside, and you say, hey, buddy, looks like we've got a choice right now. Uh, you could join your brother and sister in cleaning up the toy room, and guess what? Popsicles. They'll be awesome. Or you can do what you're doing right now, which is not helping your brother and sister, and you will go to bed, and you will stay there for a long time. What do you want to do? Anybody parent that way? You're trying to help your kid learn some stuff. Make right choices. Raise up a child in the way that she should go, right? So that eventually, maybe longer some than others, they will choose what they have been taught. But, uh, man, choices shape us. And so standing firm is going to uh, con- be contingent on us making right choices, just like it's always been. You know, I don't need to go through the whole Bible, but let's, let's have some fun. Choices started this whole thing. The first two people made a bad one. They were in Eden, and they chose not God. Sin came into the world, and here we are. But thankfully, our Bible reports lots of good ones, like the one where a guy named Noah builds an ark, a boat, in a desert. Works out. A guy named Abraham, minding his own business, uh, hears from God and walks from modern-day Iraq to modern-day Israel. Works out. A guy named Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And even as uh, he's walking through all of these horrible consequences of that choice of his brothers, he chooses not to dishonor God in any of those situations. And eventually, it works out. The disciples in the New Testament, they meet Jesus. And he calls them and he says, I'll make you fisher of men. And they leave their livelihoods. And they follow our no-name carpenter from Nazareth. And it changes their lives and ours forever. One of those disciples, a guy named Pete, was sitting in a boat. And he calls out to his Savior, who is already walking on the water. And he says, if that's you, let me join you. And he's the only guy that I know in all of history that walked on water. Choices shape outcomes. In good ways and bad. Got Eden. We got the next chapter in our Bibles where brother kills brother. Cain kills Abel. That didn't work out. We got Israel in the book of Exodus complaining about their freedom. I wish we were still slaves. And so God allows them to wander for 40 years. Their leader, a guy named Moses, um, outside of the behest of our father, taps a rock so his people could drink in that Became a consequence of his not entering the promised land. A rich ruler walks up to Jesus. He's, uh, he's certain that he is righteous because he's kept all the rules. And so he asks Jesus, hey, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the rules. And he's like, did it. And Jesus says, well, great. Now sell everything you've got and come follow me. And he had a choice. And if you know the story, he chose his riches over his ruler. And it changed everything in his life. You can read your Bibles. You'll see over and over again the the leaders, the writers, the speakers in our Bibles. They speak in terms of the choice that we are given. Joshua stands before uh, the leaders of Israel. All the tribes are gathered and he says in chapter 24 of his book, choose this day who you shall serve. Jesus finishes preaching sermon uh, to his newfound followers and he says, hey, if you do everything that I say, if you make that choice, you'll be like someone who has built their house on a rock and everything that comes in life to knock it down won't knock it down. Your house will stand firm. But if you choose to neglect and ignore what I've told you, then you're like someone who builds his house on the sand and everybody duck when the storms come on that one because it's going to wreck Choices in Galatians chapter 5. Almost done. The choices part. In Galatians chapter 5. Paul's writing to a church that's been kind of obstinate, off the rails, as it were, in their thinking and in their theology. And he gets to that last part of that letter and he, he says, listen, guys, it comes down to this. You could choose the works of the flesh or you could choose the fruit of the Spirit. He lists them out. I'm not going to take all the time to do that, but there's 15 works of the flesh. He just rattles them all off. And then he says, but, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. Say them with me. It's love and joy and peace and patience. It's kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He basically sets up the two lists and he says, choose. Choose the life you want. Choose. Now, in our purposes here in Philippians, we're going to see four of those fruits um, given as commands by Paul, admonishments to the church in Philippi. Philippi. He says, choose these things. Choose love. Choose joy. Choose peace. He's going to talk about choosing gentleness. Choose these things. Can I encourage you in this choice of, of the fruit? It's not something that we have to go foraging for, Right? Um, Eleanor uh, likes to walk around our neighborhood. Uh, um, she has this like long stick with poles, and she will find like these lemon trees that are kind of left in—I don't know if it's legal. Should I be talking about this? Anyway, <laughs> but she and some of the ladies from our church—you know who you are—will <laughs> walk around and they'll see something, you know, a fruit like from a lemon tree hanging in this like abandoned, and they'll just take this long stick and pop it out there, like, <gasps> and they'll bring it home and they'll be like, "Look at the treasures we found!" I was like, "I'm not eating that." Anyway. Uh, some people think of the fruit as this like uh, foraging experiment or this foraging voyage. i got to go find some. i got to go find the fruit. Look, Look at me. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the fruit came with the download. It's in you. The Spirit of God is in you. The fruit are his character. The character of God resides in you by the grace of God through the presence of Jesus. And so you... You need not go looking for it. You need to understand it certainly, but then choose it and use it, employ it in the life that you live. (sighs) All right. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. How do we do that? We're going to talk about it over the next couple weeks. The first thing he tells them to do is to choose love in order to erase division. Choose love. Access the, the fruit of the Spirit that is love in you when it comes to your relationships with, other, with each other. Uh, standing firm depends on this. If we lose you know, the war in the relationships uh, that we have, the, the, the fight in keeping us together in, in this realm, you know, we'll never stand firm in the spiritual war that rages around us. He says this, he gets all personal in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Um, We have no other information about these two ladies. We know they're women, except that they are not agreeing. We don't know what the fight's about. Uh, We don't know if, you know, they were at uh, uh, Housewives of Philippi, uh, you know, taping. That's stupid. That's dumb. That's dumb. It's stupid. I'm sorry, you know, uh, but someone said something and the, the one threw the wine at the other and things are crazy now, it's probably not that, but, uh, but something has happened in their relationship to where they are not together anymore in the Lord, they are not together in, in life, uh, and, and so Paul says, hey, uh, both of you, agree in the Lord, uh, let love heal the wound Uh, that exists between you. I was talking with Eleanor this week on one of our walks and we talked about uh, one of the choices that we have in life. When hurt happens, you can either choose sores or scars. You get the difference between the two? Sores don't heal. You keep them open. You keep picking at them and poking them. And and they they remain, uh, they they fester and they remain a problem. But scars heal. And you can look at the scars. Anybody look back at the, the hurts of your past and learn from those things? Grateful that you're beyond them, but uh, benefiting from them. Yeah, this is the choice that he's basically thrown out for Yodia and Syntyche. Hey, you guys, scars, whatever is is between you, heal. Uh, Don't allow it to remain a sore, an open sore uh, between you and life. This word, uh, entreat, it's kind of a word we don't use often in English. It's the Greek word parakalo. It means to entreat or to urge or to encourage uh, in our common vernacular, I might be like, oh, let's go, ladies, let's go. Come on. Seriously, we're going to do this? We're going to keep divided like this? Let's go, Paul says. Let's get this sorted. Let's let love bring healing where things are broken. I love that he, he uses paracalo or pericolo, uh with both ladies. I entreat Yodia. And I also entreat Syntyche. It's like there's an even balance in the the onus and the burden of things being okay. Now, in my experience, that's hardly ever the case. Usually, if there's like a hurt or an offense in a relationship, there's an offender and an offended. Have you noticed this? Like this one did this and this one got hurt. Uh, And so Paul says, hey, I don't care who the offender was or who the offended is. Everybody worked to bring this back together. We are called to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're called to love each other as we love ourselves. We are called to love. And so even if you're the one, because this is what happens typically in relationships. Well, as soon as they pull their head out and start, you know, saying the things that they need to say to me, I'll come back into a relationship with this person. Sorry, that was kind of gruff, but you, you get what I'm saying. As, as if they'll make the first move, then I'll, I'll join in. But here's what Paul has just said to these two women. You're both making the first move. Figure this out. And move in the direction of healing. Why does Paul call these ladies out? Because personal conflicts, this is kind of the big duh of the day, personal conflicts ruin personal relationships. Anybody come from that family? Where people just stop getting along and instead of trying, they just separated? whether it was a marriage or whether it was parents with kids or siblings with siblings. Eh. And if conflicts aren't dealt with, uh, we just kind of get used to them not being solved and we move on. And relationships are lost. But that's not his only concern. In a church context, like he's writing in, personal conflicts tend not to stay personal. You know, it's like, Twilight. I'm with Edward. I'm with the guy who was the werewolf. I can never remember his name. But uh, you know, we pick sides. We got our favorites. And so a conflict becomes public because somebody noticed it's hard to keep conflicts from, from showing. Anybody ever seen that couple that came over to your house from dinner and they had a huge fight right before they came inside? Awkward, right? That first twenty minutes you're like, well, I don't know what happened out there, but uh pass the potatoes. Anyway, uh it's just hard to, it's hard to keep conflicts on the down low. They just, they, they tend to show up. And so people are like, well, I like Yodia more than I like Syntyche. So whatever Yodia's side is my side and Syntyche can just go, right? And all of a sudden the church, and, and I'm so grateful it doesn't happen anymore in the world that we live in, that the church is this perfect, harmonious place and that, you know, no humans in the church would ever disagree to the point that they'd want to go to another church. So I hope that's, you know, obviously true with you that you're not here because you get mad at the last place. Um... Uh, Because what has to happen in healthy churches is that people who disagree work through those things. And they sort them out. In where they can't agree in the pieces of life, they agree in the Lord. And they forgive. And they heal. You know, personal conflicts in churches tend not to stay personal. Churches split over such things. 20 years ago, before I got here, uh, our church, if you were here, you remember this, went through a difficult season. Uh, the previous leader before me made some choices that, you know, certainly uh, uh, on the one side I think was right, the elder side. It was like, things need to change. He can't be our pastor anymore. But people love that man, rightly so. He's, a, he's an, you know, aside from some of this stuff, he's an amazing guy. So, so it became, keep him, don't keep him. Let him go, he's gotta go. Uh, you, You get my point. And this church suffered because of the sides that were taken, right? It ought not to be. Where possible, we need to find solution. Can I do a quick sermon sidebar? Doesn't matter. Here it comes. In my experience, the greatest challenge of the uh, uh, effectual work of the church is not met from outside, it occurs inside. Like, I, I, there's this tree that fell over during the last hurricane, when was that, like a year ago, two years ago, whatever, uh, but the last hurricane, this massive uh, uh, tree that was right by my street fell over, maybe you read my email about it, uh, and, and so that morning after the hurricane, my entire neighborhood came out to, to clear this tree so that people could actually drive down our street. Um, But if you look at the stump of the tree, I meant to get you a picture, but can everybody picture it with me? If you look at the stump of the tree, it's still all jagged and and sawed off or the tree snapped and fell over. But if you peer into that stump, how much of the stump is really there anymore? I'll tell you how much. Only this outer rim. The tree had started to rot from the inside. And so when the winds of the hurricane blew, there wasn't enough tree to hold up the tree. And the weight of it just knocked it over. Our adversary loves to get on the inside and ruin churches from there. He loves to create drama wherever he can. I am anti drama. I will deal with your stuff with you, but we're not going to make it something it's not. Because we're not going to allow Satan the satisfaction of dividing us and pulling us in different directions. He loves to be the Trojan horse enemy. He loves to, it says this in Ephesians chapter 4 that we should be angry. It's actually a command of God. Righteous anger, good. But we should not sin in our anger and let it divide us. We should not let the sun go down on our anger. And we should not let anger allow our adversary, the devil, a toehold in our lives or in our churches because that's where he likes to play. We all talk about and I get it. I get your emails. You send me the most recent post about, you know, how, you know, the woke this and all that stuff. And I, listen, I agree that there are things that we need to stand for in the church against the world that is coming against us. Hear me preach that. But I am more concerned about the effects of some of those debates in the church and pulling away, us away from what matters and dividing us in ways that would render us useless in the mission that God has given us. Are you? with me. and So Paul says, hey guys, sort this stuff out. Uh, We'll get to verse 3 and then I'll stop. He goes on and he says this. He says, yes, I ask you also. And then he introduces a new character to the story. True companion. We don't know this person's name. True companion. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with a guy named Clement. We don't know anything about him all the Philippians would apparently, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He, he, uh, most scholars that I read this week think the true companion here is probably the current pastor of the church in Philippi. Whoever that person was, he's like, hey, you know, fellow leader in the church, help these ladies sort this stuff out. Uh, true companion, that word companion there, I love it. It's this uh, a Greek word that comes from the farm. It's suzuge, uh, and it's, uh, it basically means yoke fellow or yoke partner, uh, yoked with. Uh, back then, uh, the, the, the farm tractor was a pair of oxen, and they would wear this like neck handcuff rig uh, where they would be yoked together and they would do the work of the farm. And so Paul goes to that, that rig and he says, hey, I'm the one guy in the one side of this yoke. I need you to join me for the sake of the unity of this church. Whoever true companion is, they know right away when he says, suzuge, you you need to go do some work in this situation. Now, some of you are like, oh, is Mark kind of setting me free to go meddle in people's lives? Ooh, I can't wait to do that. No, uh, it's not a command to meddle. It's a command to mend, to forbear with what's going on in someone else's life. Paul writes it uh, this way as he talks to the Romans. In Romans chapter 15, verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. Oh, we've read that in this letter, haven't we? In Philippians 2, Paul tells us uh, uh, in verse 5 to have the mind of Christ. Then he goes on to describe Christ and his actions here on earth. He said he didn't, even though he was God, he didn't consider equality with God something that he should grasp. He set it aside and he became nothing. even, Even to the point where he hung himself, he allowed himself to be hung on a cross and die for our sakes. Jesus wasn't here for his own shine, his own purposes, he was here at the behest of the Father to honor him in the commands and the plan that he had. And so are we. So when it cut, co- listen, this is a hard one for me because, you know, not my circus, not my monkey is one of my favorite phrases, right? Now, and there, there's certainly parts of that that are true. For the meddler in you, that's a true statement. Not your circus, not your monkey. Don't make it more of a mess. But for those of us who are in life with people who are out of fellowship, out of relationship, at war, whatever you want to call it, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading so that we can come alongside those people and where God would allow, referee. Bring about healing. Lovingly confront and seek to restore. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Can I just share one more thing? Doesn't matter. Here it comes. Yes, I uh, verse three one last time. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Who's heard of the book of life? Anybody heard of the book of life? Yeah, if you've heard about it, you you understand that there's this book where if if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you by grace and through faith have received Christ, your name has been written down in the book. And I used to think of that book as like, well, look, my name's in the book. It's like some kind of heavenly LinkedIn or something, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, (laughs) I have a, a, you know, a a page in in the book of life and here's all of my, uh, you know, accomplishments and and all the trainings I've had and I'm, you know, currently working as the pastor of Bay Life Church in Brandon, Florida. And I've done that for a long, you know, and, and, and I don't think I have meant to do that, but I think that's been my impression. My name is in the book. Look at me. Uh, did I do anything to get into the book of life? For some of you who are wondering, the, the answer is no. Other than put my faith in the one who did everything so that I might be in the book of life. The book of life isn't this, like, uh, who's who amongst American high school seniors or whatever, you know, these stupid books that people want to get their names in. Uh, It's a, it's, it's, this is what someone I read this week said, it's more of a receipt book. Somebody got a receipt book? These are old things because we're all digital these days, but, but some ledger where you're recording your purchases. You know what Paul uh, wrote to his friends in Corinth uh, about us and our relationship with Christ? Um. We are the purchased ones. He says this in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then he says, This you are, say it with me, not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So back to Philippians, Paul says, Hey, true yoke fellow, help these ladies out because they've labored with me. We're we're on the same team. Our books are our books. Our names are in the same book. They are purchased because Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. Our sins had left a crimson stain, and Jesus washed them white as snow. We're his, not ours. And so, it's not on us to decide what we do in certain situations. It's on us to understand what he asks us to do and to obey him in those things. So now as Darnisha comes to play cuz she doesn't know when I'm going to stop either. <clears throat> so now Paul says, "Stand firm in the faith." What's that going to require of us? It's going to require us Loving each other through the potential and current divisions that our enemy would seek to wreck us with. That means if you're out of sorts with someone in here, you don't leave today until you sort it out. By the grace of God, in humility, in love, no headlocks, but you sort it out. If you're in here today and you know of people who are in that situation, you come to them, and by the grace of God... You bring it up lovingly without finger pointing and you say, hey, let's work on this. Why? Because if we're in the book of life together, we're not our own. And it's what God sent Jesus to die on the cross for us to have. He paid it all so that we might live in harmony with each other, in harmony with him, in obedience to his call so that he gets the glory and we get the best life that he offers. That's my prayer for you. We'll, we'll pick up there next week. Can we sing about this one who paid it all? Stay with us as we sing.